This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On this week's edition... Instant Starmer's gonna get you. What will Keir Starmer's sacking of Chief Corbynista Rebecca Long-Bailey after she shared a newspaper story containing an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory mean for Labour's new era of peace and tranquility? What's the story for McGlory? Philip Sargent, author of The Art of Political Storytelling, joins us to talk about the insidious power of narrative in politics, how populists always promise to restore past greatness, and what sort of stories we'll need to fix the world in years to come. And, speaking of once and future glories, what can we learn about leadership, inspiration, honesty, and the power of a good set of teeth from Jurgen Klopp, manager of Liverpool FC, champions of Europe, the world, and now England too. I'm not biased at all. All this and more in today's bunker. Hello, welcome back to the weekly edition of The Bunker. Remember, we've got a gala Zoom live stream with the remaining acts next week on Thursday, 9th of July at 8pm, and it's exclusive to Patreon backers of either show. If you're not registered already, then search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. It should be a good fun night. Now, let's meet today's panel. Helen Lewis is a staff writer on The Atlantic, where she's just written a big piece about the Conservative case for divorce reform, and nobody's talking about it because it's just a culture war issue. Helen, do you feel swizzed? This should be front and centre. <laughs> I kind of do, actually. I, I wrote in my book about divorce before and about no-fault divorce and how important that was, right? At the moment, you have to use a blame grounds or you have to wait for a separation of two years or five years if, it, if the other half of the party contests it, which is sort of a mad idea anyway, that you kind of say, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And someone goes, wait, if you just think about it for another five years, maybe, maybe I can open you around. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just gone um, royal ascent last week, and so a hundred thousand couples a year get divorced. I suspect that will be slightly higher after lockdown. Um, and and it's, so it's a massive, massive change. And, and and everyone in the kind of family court system is behind it. Much better for children if you don't have to basically, if you want to get divorced quickly, turn up on day one of a court hearing and go, "Here's how you're a bastard," and then go like, "Let's have an amicable division of our assets and, and and access to our children." So it's this huge, wonderful, you know, very feminist, very progressive reform put through by a Conservative government. But presumably because of that, the Conservatives haven't briefed the lobby on it and therefore none of them are able to write things up on their own. Sorry, that's a bit, that's a bit <laughs> overly harsh. But, but, um, but you know, it's, it's, it's not been pushed by them as a kind of victory over anyone because it's not really. It's a victory over, you know, the concept of, of, of arguments um, rather than over the Labour Party. So there's no real prism for writing about it. Well, let, let, never let it be said we don't say nice things about the Conservative government once in a while. Um, <laughs> But let's stop that right now. That's the quota hit, Andrew. It's okay. Yeah, you can absolutely. Relax quota it. hit. Let's go back to being horrible. I mean, uh, the defenestration of Sir Mark Sedwell this week, the UK's top civil servant, forced out with Brexit negotiator David Frost, a, a, a famously amicable man, in line to replace him. You know, what happened here is this is did Dominic Cummings just need to go and 
punch the hardest guy in the kind of exercise yard now that he's out of solitary? <laughs> is it just a statement of restatement of power? I mean, if you've seen any photos of Mark Sable, it's not the it's not the description that would have sprung instantly to mind of him, <laughs> nor of, of Dominic Cummings really particularly. But so David Frost is going to be national security um, advisor, which was previously given to sort of a, a you know a non-party political appointment. It was a civil service trustee, but he's going in as a political appointment, like equivalent to a, a, a special advisor, really. So it's politicising that role and kind of making it one that's much more in the gift of the Prime Minister. The other half of it, um, which is the, the, heading up the civil service, will go to someone else. And there's now a fierce and feisty battle um, among all the various heads of department. They said it's got to be someone who's um, a permanent secretary already who's going to get that. And that's a really key role. That's essentially, you know, running the government in a kind of non-party political way. But, you know, the, the interesting thing about it is that one of the heads, that's the head of the DWP, I think, has sort of let it be known he was the only permanent secretary who actually voted for Brexit. And so it is a culture war to that extent in that they, they, they don't just necessarily want the best administrator for the job. They want somebody who agrees with them on, you know, whether it's Brexit or Brexit as a proxy for a whole range of other things. But yeah, this has been Dominic Cummings' obsession for an incredibly long time about decentralising and smashing stuff up. But what it seems to actually really mean in practice is that Michael Gove gets to do all the things that Boris Johnson can't be bothered to do, and then everyone else does what they tell them to. Sounds great. Also with us is Ahir Shah, a comedian, writer for The Mash Report, currently writing for his mate Nish Kumar and doing the bunker on secret toilet breaks. Hello, Ahir. How are you doing? Uh, if, if anything, I've, I'm not able to do the bunker on toilet break. This would be my toilet break. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm doing this podcast. I'm holding it in. I'm feeling very powerful. <laughs> so we saw Boris Johnson doing press-ups for the Mail on Sunday at the weekend. But what, what is going to be next? Is he going to drink a glass of fortune and like throw the glass away? Is he going to be seen riding a bear like Putin? I think that he's going to walk down a ramp in a very measured and assured manner uh, <laughs> and then spend a lot of time telling us how measured and assured it was, uh, perhaps in front of his new favourite lectern that says build, 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 which is very exciting. What is it with these guys on the kind of authoritarian right wing side that they need to be seen to be doing stuff that could go on a calendar? You know, they need to be seen to be doing this more performative. <laughs> Look at me. I tore a phone book in half. I, I, somebody said, uh, this is government like Finchie from the office, you know, throwing a kettle over a pub is a kind of an example of your political virility. Uh, well, I mean, as someone who was a stand-up comedian when that was still allowed, uh, I am in absolutely no position to judge anyone on ridiculously futile acts of performance. <laughs> <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, we're joined by Philip Sargent, author of the book The Art of Political Storytelling, Why Stories Win Votes in Post-Truth Politics. And he's also an Open University professor. Hello, Philip. How are you doing? Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me along. I'm, I'm fine at the moment. So, yep. Jolly good. Uh, you can't write about politics without writing about social media, where the kind of narratives of both truth, truth politics all take place. This week, Mark Zuckerberg's lost about $7 billion after Unilever said that they're going to boycott Facebook advertising. Starbucks are also pulling out. Do you think that, may, you know, in that particular arena, the worm may be turning? Um, yes, I guess. I mean, uh, but only after it's turned uh, very far in the other direction over the last few years. It's interesting to look at the way that uh, that social media has been seen uh, in relation to politics, where sort of 10 years ago it was uh, it was valorised as a huge de- democratic um, uh, force for good. And then I suppose mid last uh, decade, it, started, it all started going wrong and it's just gone worse and worse for them. I mean, 
a lot to do with the way that they've actually uh, um, they've actually uh, managed things themselves. So I suppose this is an attempt to to claw things to claw the to claw things back a little bit, um, both on a sort of PR front, but also more importantly on actually uh, the impact it's having on, on people's lives and indeed democracy in general. Let's start by focusing on everyone's favourite dysfunctional family, the Labour Party. In a clear act of socialist distancing, Keir Starmer sacked Rebecca Long-Bailey from the Shadow Cabinet. She'd shared an interview with Maxine Peake, which contained anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Starmer had promised to get tough on anti-Semitism, but many on the party's left are claiming vindictiveness on his part. Helen, um, the left were very quick to say criticising Israel isn't anti-Semitic. What was actually in the Peake interview that triggered this? So she said that um, systemic racism was global and that the police uh, who had kneeled on George Floyd's neck in um, the US had learned this from, quote, the Israeli secret services. And now this is, you know, there are, there is, it's one of those things about conspiracy theories is there's a fundamental grain of truth in it, which is that police departments across the world share tactics that they use. But it's not like, I think as Stephen Bush wrote, it's not like, you know, the Israel, Israel didn't invent the concept of the knee restraints, right? Um, and actually what it does is it, it is that classic left-wing anti-Semitic conspiracy theory where everything kind of goes back to, to Israel, particularly the invocation of presumably Mossad in, in this, right? Which is mm. one of those things that kind of crops up that people seem to think that Mossad did everything right up to and including 9-11 but the weird thing about it was that Maxine Pete disavowed it so it was a sort of strange hill for the Labour left to die on that there was nothing wrong with um, with her retweeting it or endorsing it but it is true that you know the very first thing that Keir Starmer said in his acceptance speech when he won the Labour leadership was you know this is a, a zero tolerance uh, environment you know I'm, I'm absolutely concerned with rebuilding my relationship with the with the Jewish community and you know what that's been really important because He's done something else that this week that's been, you know, um, Lisa Nandi has come out and said, you know, we should have a, a boycott of anything produced outside Israel's 1967 borders if Netanyahu's government annexes further parts of the West Bank. So what he's what that's allowed him to do is to separate out conspiracy theories about Israel with cons- you know, criticisms of current Israeli policies in, in its in its surrounding environment. And that was always the really important thing. And and I never really bought the you can't criticize Israel thing because Ed Miliband, you know, used to criticize Israel, um, was quite sympathetic to Palestinian statehood and all of that kind of stuff that is actually about Israel as a country rather than as a kind of bogeyman. Corbynist to Twitter was awash with people claiming that Starmer was just looking for a reason to sack it and this was a kind of a, a statement. I mean, do you think that was the case? And 44% of Labour voters thought he was right to sack her. I think what was surprised was that she didn't, she wasn't allowed to apologise and delete it. And now there's some contradiction between the accounts from the Starmer camp and the Long Bailey camp about what exactly happened. Something definitely happened, and some, you know, and and her initial response was either kind of deemed truculent or not enough. As the trouble is, I don't think as a party leader, you really, it's very hard to find situations in which sacking someone is deemed to be wrong because most people don't know who anybody, well, they don't know who the opposition leader is <laughs> for a start, right? And they certainly don't know into the granular detail of who shadow ministers are. So I think the presumption tends to be that if someone got sacked, they must have done something wrong. And people like their leaders to be strong and decisive. That's the other thing. And the weirdest thing that came out saying, well, he won't call for the sacking of Robert Jenrick, but he'll sack his own minister. And you're like, well, he's in charge of his own cabinet. And actually what <laughs> that very firm line or Rebecca Long Bailey does is gives him the moral authority to say, this is a party that cleans its house up, you know. And and that some degree of cost to the party, because there was an awful lot of sort of 
pearl clutching about party unity from certain quarters uh, that, you know, that um, uh, Starmer has thrown this under the bus. He's clearly not interested in, uh, you know, uh, bringing anything of the of the, the, the Labour Party's previous positioning into into the current party. Do you think that's true? Or do you think it's kind of uh, special pleading a little bit from um, certain of the former big figures of the old Labour left? No, I think it's true. I think it's right to say that he prioritised sending a strong signal to um, Jewish communities over keeping someone in his cabinet, which would have been better for not rocking the boat. As we're talking, there's a National Executive Committee meeting on in which they're discussing the changes to the the election systems, whether or not it should be a simple majority or um, (laughs) a single transferable vote. There we go. And there was a hilarious article this this week in Tribune magazine, which is the sort of now the kind of left wing magazine of, of choice, sort of Novara for people with a slow internet connection. Um, about <laughs> Slovara. <laughs> Slovara, there we go. Um, about the fact that it was vitally important um, that we, we, the system didn't change to a single transferable vote uh, because this would be bad for democracy. Never, ever, ever explaining why. And you kind of have to assume reading through the lines is that that would be bad for Unite's representation. And actually the big contest of the Corbyn era for the power in the party was between the Unite Union, which provided all the cash, and Momentum, which provided all the kind of campaigning um, heft, really, Starmer has to play those factions off against each other. He can't afford to alienate absolutely everybody and just rely on the soft left and the old right of the party because he needs, you know, there's still a huge momentum slate representation on on the National Executive Committee, which is where all the rules get get made. So he's got to walk a, a pretty fine line. And it, this may come back to, to haunt him in some respects. I hear. What do you think? What do you take away from this? I mean, it did look like Rebecca Long-Bailey was kind of bang to rights here. I mean... Everything that I am going to say about the Labour Party and the left needs to be taken with the understanding that you may occasionally hear a click clack in the background because my girlfriend is literally preparing avocado toast for lunch. Uh, (laughs) Tell us more about millennials, I hear. (laughs) You'll never be able to afford a house if you eat eat avocado on toast. Louisa, we could have bought a house if you weren't doing this. So, I mean, look, uh, you know, it's always going to be the case that sort of a side calls for unity when they're in charge and doesn't, you know, seeks to be annoyed at things when they're not in charge. And what feels increasingly abnormal uh, to me is quite like I I know Twitter isn't the world. Obviously, Twitter isn't the world. uh, But that has become increasingly stark, I think, over the last while of lockdown uh, when I sort of open this app and open my window and things just feel instinctively very, very different. Mm. Uh, So I think maybe it just is the case that, you know, these are people who you shouldn't doubt people's sort of sincere commitment to what they feel is the right way to create a better world. But yeah, maybe people just feel the need to be sort of annoyed about this and feel themselves being marginalised and talking about it on Twitter is a way to get around that and feel a bit less alone. I did think about that, actually, about the fact that obviously one thing there haven't been is constituency Labour Party meetings because of lockdown for several months. And that has removed a big, I mean, you can either say intimidation mechanism or kind of enthusiasm uh, mechanism, right? Is that people aren't having to sit with beside people through endless motions. I mean, I think of some of the stuff that happened in Luciana Berger's local party, right? About the motions against her and the kind of really big ill feeling about her. All of that's been kind of put on pause. So I think that has been a real issue for um, for, for momentum and from, for some of the Labour left organising is that actually Twitter's kind of what they've got left, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Mm. 
Philip, like, this is all to happen again as a backdrop of Starmer getting increasingly uh, good poll ratings, um, performing increasingly well in the Commons, getting the strong impression that the Conservatives are genuinely concerned about uh, about this. You know, Starmer is often criticised for not taking a sufficiently confrontational approach, not sort of doing enough condemnation. Are, are you impressed with it so far? Yeah, I mean, I think the other interesting thing about this, uh, the substantive issue aside, it's, it's, it's presumably it sort of links to his attitude of what's going to happen with social media because he's, he's, he's stamped it out immediately. He's sort of cut it off. Yeah. Uh, and, you, and these days there seem to be sort of two ways to treat social media. One there is to be very cautious about it, realise things can uh, flare up for no reason, uh, or not for no reason, but flare up in ways that you can get completely out of control. Uh, and although, yeah, the general population, um, most of them don't care about what's going on Twitter. The trouble is a lot of the people who write for uh, the papers and who um, appear on television do. So it sort of filters out. Um, so there's one way to sort of control it. The other way is to embrace it and double down and do the sort of, you know, the well, the Donald Trump um, provoking conflict, provoking uh, outrage, provoking, and then just follow through with it. And obviously, uh, Starman's very keen not to do that, which fits with his personality. So I think that, you know, just immediately cutting it off, um, as you say, there, there are very complex, very important uh, discussions to be had about the relationship between um, the Israeli state, the Israeli government, notions of Jewishness and stuff. But Twitter, or indeed any sort of social media, is so clearly not the place um, to have these because it simplifies, because it leads to conflict and so forth. So I think from that point of view, it, it's an interesting uh, approach he's taking. He is using social media a lot. Uh, he puts out regular little videos and things, but he's not using it as a tool to rile up uh, uh, the base, which uh, so many people have done. The collapse of the power of momentum has been really fast and almost almost total. I mean, they've gone from kingmakers to kind of hecklers from the sidelines in, in, in a matter of months. Um Helen, what what do you think this uh, portends for the future of the left, as it were? I mean, is this is this now their role? I don't. I wouldn't rule them out. I mean, I still think the organising base is quite strong, and it's a you know it's a big member led organisation, particularly. But I think the, the scale of the defeat was just simply so large in in December that the average Labour member is um, you know is kind of reconciled to the idea that something had to change, and I think that's part of the reason that Rebecca Long Bailey didn't win the leadership is she was basically saying you know, oh, Brexit was the reason we lost the election and everything else was basically fine. And I don't think that was the majority, well, clearly wasn't the majority opinion because Keir Starmer won by a pretty significant um, majority. But the, yeah, the, the interesting thing is about where that energy goes. And I think it, it speaks a bit to Philip's book, actually, about the power of storytelling and kind of tribal um, signalling. You know, Labour has now got a tougher position on Israel than it had under either Ed Miliband or Jeremy Corbyn in policy terms. And it's whether or not do activists value the policy position or do they value the tribal signals more highly? So, you know, you always have to look behind what people are saying that they want to what they actually want. And this has been a very, I think I'd say the same about Lloyd Russell Moyle, you know, and his um, accusation that JK Rowling was weaponizing her, her sexual assault. And again, he got put back in his box pretty quickly. And there is a feeling now that that bit of the left, which I would associate him with too, is very much, you know, on the wane and has to kind of, you know, hasn't got a big enough power base still in the party that it can kind of throw its weight around and expect to get away with it. Also, uh, Helen, your point about uh, sort of the substantive policy 
position versus uh, like the, a more abstract feeling uh, very much reminded me of your very, very good piece about work capitalism, uh, which uh, you, you will not plug yourself, but I will plug. <laughs> that's very nice of you. I, I mean, that's a bit, you're taking a big risk by saying I wouldn't plug that myself, but um, yes, I think... <laughs> well, uh, you haven't, you haven't done so yet. No, it's something I've been thinking about a lot. So I did. A, I have a newsletter, which is um, helenlewis.substack.com, and I wrote a piece about yeah what I call woke capitalism. And that's not a dismissive, you know, right wing use of the word woke. The idea of actually becoming alert to social injustice is not an absurd one. What is absurd is the fact that you get in this situation where you know, you have diversity trainings and companies that have no real evidence base behind them when they could be like paying their cleaners a living wage or making sure that you hire junior staff at a rate that means someone who comes from a, you know, a normal background, maybe they've got immigrant parents, maybe went to a state school, you know, they're just a a normal regular person can afford to live in a city where your company is based. Um, and, And that kind of stuff, I think, is really social media. It's the thing that social media has done to the left, that is, it has made it value those tokenistic symbols really highly over the kind of grinding stuff about s- structural change. But I put jokes in as well. I'd like to say that I always <laughs> and that's what's important. <laughs> Stay off <Flat>. my turf. <laughs> <laughs> now, who remembers truth? It was great, wasn't it? For the past five years, we've been living in a post-truth world where tapping into emotion has proved far more effective than rational argument. We've seen it firsthand here in the UK with Brexit, in the United States with the election of Donald Trump and across the world. And what gets all this stuff over the line is stories, as today's guest Philip Sargent writes in The Art of Political Storytelling, Why Stories Win Votes in Post-Truth Politics. Philip, the past few years have felt like agony for reality-based politics with horrible concepts like alternative facts and fake news being weaponised. But is that is that stuff actually that new? Politicians have always been storytellers and they've always been fast and loose with the truth. Are, are we just giving new names to old things? Uh, yes and no, I guess is the answer to that. To, to an extent, yes, it's always been it's always been the case. You go back, uh, you know, to the ancient Greeks and so forth, and there's the idea that um, truth is the first uh, the first casualty of uh, war and so forth. Um, and it's always been the case that you know. Uh, to an extent, um, people will spin or lie or what have you. But I think it's it's become very much more significant in the last in the last few years, in um, in a way which is, as you say, slightly worrying. Talking briefly about conspiracy theories and, and so forth, there's this sort of very mainstream sense in the world that there are t- there's a sort of a, 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 a um, a superficial level of what's happening, and then underneath that, there's the real truth. And this, this our, our whole politics is sort of based on this at the moment. Um, in, as I say, in a very bizarre and worrying way. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of a, a need for things to be more complex than they really are, and a, and and a, you know, people like Francis Ween and David Aronovich have written about this: the idea that you know, conspiracy theory and the idea that the truth is being held from you is fundamentally a narcissistic thing because it puts you, the person who spotted it, at the centre of the story, when in fact, in reality, possibly you're not, possibly you're just a, a, another member of the crowd. I mean, do you think that the, the validity and the importance of political storytelling has become more important in, in, in recent years? Because, you know, it, it's always been a narrative thing, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the point I make is narrative in in and of itself, storytelling in and of itself is not a problem. Storytelling can be an excellent way of um, explaining something to someone. Um, so it doesn't. It's not. 
necessarily. Um, <laughs> I, I really like the I really like the idea, Philip, that you would just come out and be just anti any kind of storytelling, like the <laughs> lame to Aesop. Yeah, like, yeah. Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's yeah. an educational tool. It's a good way of, as you, as you say, with with fables or something, a good way of uh, putting forward uh, putting forward points in a, in a way that's relatable and so forth. So, so there's that. Um, and at the same time, and one of the things that storytelling does often is simplify issues. Um, mm. And one of the things that cuts through a lot in political rhetoric and so forth is also something which simplifies something people. And I think that's one of the big problems we've had. I mean, something like Brexit or something, uh, pro-Brexit this is, based on a very simple story <clears throat> of what national identity in the UK is. And that sort of that's become so important for this, all the discussions we've had about Brexit over the last uh, four years that the facts, the actual practical things, sort of don't have no sort of traction at all. And at some stage, you, you would assume there will be a clash between the two. What's interesting, one of the many things, interesting things in the book is that you kind of demonstrate how the story that most populists will tell about themselves is so hollywood that it's almost corny you know if we, if presented in the form of a movie would be regarded as too too corny it's a lone outsider from a humble background against a giant machine it's basically star wars it's like yeah. trying to find the hole in the back of the death star this is joseph campbell stuff was that an insight that um you know campaigners in the kind of post-war politics found that they should essentially be presenting politics as hollywood I, th- I think probably that's become more and more the case over the last what thirty years or so, as politics and entertainment have grown together. Um, I mean, Trump has based his whole political career on this idea that he's an outsider um, to Washington, that he has this different type of experience, that he gave up his uh, his comfortable lifestyle to uh, to come and save the country and stuff. And even when he's in power, he's still trying to press that same bloody story. You know, um, he's still being uh, beset by deep state officials and so forth, he's still fighting against uh, the establishment. So, again, yeah, I do think, I, I think it's a, um, partly what the political establishment itself has done, but also the way that the media has changed and news reporting has changed again over the last sort of 30 years. It's personality-driven, it's driven by conflict, it's driven by all these things which sort of relate directly to storytelling um, and which often can push out more uh, obscure and detailed arguments about the actual uh, actual policy and so forth. You've made a pretty good case of Donald Trump as, a, as the hero of a particular kind of story, but how does that apply to, how does that leave Boris Johnson? How does that apply to him? It's hardly an heroic journey, is it? It's more just William than uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Do the same rules apply here? It sort of is, but if you look the, the sort of basic template, again, he's a, he's always set himself up as an outsider now. This is very much the difference between the persona he puts forward of, you know, a straight talker, um, a flamboyant character, someone who's different from the run of the mill of uh, Westminster West politicians. Uh, Andrew, I think I would disagree that Boris Johnson's story isn't heroic because in some sense it's like a heroic story is one in which something has to be overcome. And when the thing that's overcome is the very idea of reality, it's probably <laughs> the biggest thing that you can possibly overcome. In the And like what a heroic journey to overcome reality and become a man who is unencumbered by literally anything is, it's, it's impressive in its own way. It's very Lewis Carroll. I'll give you that. <laughs> there seems to be a fundamental difference between storytelling and governing are we going to keep electing storytellers who couldn't run a welk store 
I mean, that that's a very good question. We're, I think with Trump, we're at that point now. You know, he, he thrived or he skated on on this uh, notion of uh, his larger-than-life personality as an outsider and so forth. Um, but obviously, to be, put it rather simplistically, politics is a mixture of persuasion but also policy. Um, mm. And now he's Trump is being confronted by the inadequacies of any sort of um, political strategy around uh, COVID. Um, to the extent that uh, the US is not getting on top of the situation in any real sense. I mean, yeah, tens of thousands of new infections a day. I think that's the thing I found most interesting about coronavirus as a political story is the fact that it is just so unsusceptible to spin because it just keeps infecting people. It doesn't really care what anyone says on Twitter. Like it just keeps on spreading through droplets. And therefore it has really exposed a certain type of kind of populist leader as as someone who can, obviously, as you say, talk a good game about how the deep state is holding them back, but can't actually you know, distribute medical resources or, you know, run uh, public health awareness campaigns. Helen, I feel like I I have to believe that there is something other than just people respond to a great story and don't care about the substance of who's really that purely because that idea is literally the ending of Game of Thrones. And it was so bad. <laughs> so w- when you talked about sort of obviously the tradition of storytelling in politics going back to the ancient world this has been around for a very long time i just feel as though with the with the advent of social media and the comparative interconnectedness of the world now and before at what stage does a difference in degree become a different in kind you know i i I think you can call it a difference in kind as of sort of 2016 um in that it's well you see a range of these particular types of personalities, usually uh, populist personalities, suddenly uh, without any sense of experience or any sense of uh, um, uh, realistic vision getting into power. So, I mean, Bill Clinton and and Barack Obama both ran on particular stories of hope and uh, changing America, which was embodied in their own life stories. Um, But suddenly with with Trump, it's, yeah, partly because of social media, Partly, I think, because of the rise of things like Fox News and so forth, which really, I mean, yeah, okay, so that that was uh, earlier in the century a little bit, but has really uh, amplified, as I say, particularly this notion of conflict, particularly this notion of personalities in conflict, and has generated a sort of non-stop um, desire for drama, (laughs) for want of a better word. So finally, I mean, we're at the beginning of a decade in a, in a world that's been completely shaped by stories that bear decreasing relevance to reality. People feel starved of basic competence. They feel starved of the, of, of the, you know, the boring business of getting things done. It's the next story arc of a, a Mr. Starmer who come, goes to Westminster promising the ability to just get stuff done without flannel. Yeah, I think that to what sense that takes hold and the... Uh is persuasive is another question but i think that's very much the one of the uh, one of the ideas that he's running on the idea that he's an anti boris johnson even an anti jeremy corbyn he's doing something different competency and so forth and to an extent what happens between trump and trump and biden um biden's campaign at the moment is pretty much just not being donald trump mm-hmm. yeah at the moment there isn't a there isn't a, a sort of very positive uh, an obviously positive story that's going to uh, replace the situation we're in. It's just that if a, con- a complete fatigue uh, and um, 
a sense of reality about uh, about the implausibility of uh, the types of stories we that have been running so far just takes over and we'll have something else instead simply by default uh, something might uh, yet um, spring up to replace that but uh, yeah there's a sort of as i say a fatigue in this post-truth nonsense at the moment as well as far as i can see that's that's the only saving grace uh, on the horizon um one of my favorite uh things about the way that i've thought about political stories recently uh has been that my mum got really into watching pmqs over lockdown <laughs> uh and she like many people you know she's retired now but was a public sector worker in a union sort of voted labor is an immigrant uh sort of Followed the news, but never like followed, followed it because she had a lot of other shit on. Um, and it was really interesting after spending a day just looking at all of this stuff on Twitter, uh, getting a text from my mum uh, after she'd watched the PMQs, uh, just saying like, oh, I've been looking into this um, Mr. Starmer and it seems like a uh, regular guy, uh, worked hard, did well for himself, and he looks out for people like us. <laughs> and I was just like, right. mother, never get Twitter. <laughs> never get Twitter. <laughs> 63 years on this earth and you are still so pure. <laughs> never get Twitter, please. Finally, we need to talk about Jürgen. Let's end with some good news for the whole country. Liverpool FC won the Premier League last week when Chelsea beat Man City, bringing Liverpool's haul up to 19 top flight titles and something that I know absolutely everybody will be as delighted as me about. For many people, the standout image wasn't Liverpool fans with flares or Gary Neville fleeing to Papua New Guinea. It was the normally stoic Klopp breaking down in tears when he dedicated the victory to Kenny Daglish, to Jamie Carragher, to former players, to the fans. It really got to me done about you. What is it about Jürgen? I love him, obviously, but so does everybody else. He's the manager that everybody wishes they had. I hear. What's so impressive about Klopp? What do you think about him? <laughs> I love what a loaded question that is, and I totally admire it. <laughs> <laughs> How much do you love Jürgen? Do you love him more than me? <laughs> I, I love him a very great deal. Like, in a way that I wouldn't want to think too much about, because I think the root of it is just we've become so like ground down by so much of reality that it's just really refreshing to see someone who seems normal and kind. And I think that's why everyone's yes. a fan of him. Because it's like, oh, you seem like you're not, I bet you're a good dad. <laughs> that's what you really think. Yeah, it's just a good humour and a good laugh. Yeah. Um, Hel- Helen, are you a football follower? I'm going to say, I'll bite, um, Andrew. What's football? <laughs> right, okay. It's a spherical <laughs> object. Um, you must have you must have uh, come across Klopp in your. Uh... I have actually. I've read. In fact, my, my main interaction with him was reading an extremely long um, Twitter thread of someone's fan fiction about all the variously oh, sort of yeah. dad-like but filthy things they wanted oh, to yeah. do with Jurgen Klopp. Laura's thread, really good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I thought that, and I think he's picked it up right. Actually, it is the kind of dad energy. It's what I, I not to get on my feminist high horse, but I think it is really genuinely quite difficult to find models of masculinity that aren't kind of brittle and blokey in a sort of unpleasantly kind of you know in a Boris Johnson-y kind of way right um it, but just someone who seems to be both authoritative and kind of caring and that balance is quite is quite sweet and attractive I think yeah and I mean he's you know his his wild enthusiasm and his crazy teeth and and the fact that he's kind of he has really welded not just the team but also all the fans into one big unit also like he wears a cap and he pulls it off but it's not an evil cap that's unusual in the world <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of endearingly naff. Philip, how about you? Are you a football person? 
I'm not a huge football person, um, so yeah, to what extent I've got anything useful or uh, sensible to say about this, I don't know. But I, I, I suppose the thing that comes across uh, with him is that, he, yeah, he's, he's a very measured uh, um, sense of himself and indeed sense of uh, sense of the team, while at the same being uh, obviously passionate and, um, and very successful about it. And that sense that he's uh, he knows what he knows and he's happy uh, to not talk about what he doesn't know if you see what yeah I mean. I mean well from a story point of view uh Jürgen is absolutely the best thing that could happen to Liverpool you know because we've had you know numerous restarts and people who weren't quite there and then a guy comes in and you just know it's gonna be all right you know he he manages through feel good he he's brought everybody into the group and made them one thing not just the players but the backroom staff the fans everybody i've been listening to management podcasts about jürgen klopp's way of running things and i've kind of come to the conclusion that he's actually the boss everybody wishes they could have in all of their jobs you know all the crap bosses we've all had i'm self employed and i wish he was my boss there you <laughs> go i, I want to be him <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like the you know the bad bosses you've had who sort of say one thing and then do another or who who throw you know underlings under the bus who, who kind of punch down and 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 kind of uh, grovel upwards he doesn't do any of those things and apparently when he gets rid of a player um he'll like take half a day to spend time with him explaining why it's happening People have, have described walking past Jurgen's office to see Jurgen hugging a player who's yeah. crying as he lets him go. There was a case with the with the goalkeeper carriers who really blew it in a European Cup final. Mm. And what most managers would do would like basically make him the scapegoat, fire him the next day, put him on the transfer list, and make it absolutely clear that it, it was this guy's fault. And Jurgen let him leave with dignity several months later. And that's not just sort of basic human decency. That's a very very canny thing if you're managing a group of people because they need to know that if it goes wrong they're not going to be thrown to the walls. This sounds like the exact opposite of the way that Downing Street is currently being run, right? <laughs> yeah. One of the things that apparently made Mark Sewell decide he was going to leave is, you know, just the level of briefing already kind of coming out about the fact that, you know, the civil servants already feel that everything that went wrong in coronavirus, even the political decisions, is going to be blamed on, on them. You know, like the government had brilliant ideas. It just, you know, that the creaking old civil service who all clock off at 4pm weren't able to deliver them. And that sense is really lethal. The idea that someone's kind of playing their own game or like that that you know you you can be a scapegoat it just completely shatters morale yeah and that's why Liverpool have been able to play in this kind of supernatural way in that like the players don't have any fear there's an astonishing moment in um the European Cup semi-final where Trent Alexander-Arnold this prodigy from Liverpool takes a corner in a most unexpected way it is a friend of mine described as the most scouse thing that (laughs) literally just stole the goal and to have the audacity to do that that has to come from somewhere and it's because Klopp has given them the license to do what they can do and I, I look at him and I just think there are so many things that everybody should learn from the way he does stuff like you mentioned, Philip, he knows what he doesn't know, and he brings in people who know what they're doing and lets them lets them do it. And you know, I'm sitting here thinking, I run these podcasts. I should be more like that. I should be less with control. You know, just, as you know, as listeners can probably tell, I am a devotee, and I would walk through the gates of hell for this man. But, <laughs> but you wouldn't like, be walking alone. <laughs> I wouldn't be walking alone. 
<laughs> Helen, we're going to have to wrap the podcast up because I'm starting to go a bit. I'm just you know, thinking about you. <laughs> Genuinely, in, in these straightened times, it is really pleasant just to listen to someone talk about something that they like sincerely love. Yeah, it's just really one nice. And in his love for a man called Jürgen, it's kind of beautiful. Well, you know, he is my hero. Um... <laughs> that is it. So we've come to the end of the podcast with seven games to go. We've wrapped it up, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. The country may be opening up, but what are our panellists thinking about to take their minds off the thought of a second wave and politics in general? Uh, here, what's your diversion of choice this week? I've got a bicycle now. Oh, right. Uh, I've never cycled in London before, uh, even though I grew up here. I was always too afraid, uh, but I sort of leapt on it because I'm like, I don't want to be doing public transport all the time. Uh, get a cycle, go about town. I love it. I've, I've become I've become a Brompton evangelist. A Brompton evangelist. I'm sure yeah. I saw them at Glastonbury. Yeah. Glastonbury. Everyone get one. Philip, now that I have one, everyone else get one. And you can find them. There's a, isn't there a bike shortage as a result of coronavirus? There's like a bike drought out there. Very hard to find bikes these days, I'm told. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I went when I initially wanted to get a bike. I went to a local branch of Evan Cycles, and the dude was just like. The problem is, is that we do not currently possess bikes. <laughs> it was very, it was very like you had one job. So. <laughs> Philip, what are you doing to take your mind off the churning world of politics at the moment? That's a very good question. I was, I was thinking about this because to an extent, so much of entertainment these days has become political as well. Um, but yeah. having said that, and so, for example, a lot of the books I've been reading, although they're not specifically about, you know, they're not work related, they're still bizarrely about politics but what i've just started reading is uh, matthew Sergis's book about oscar wilde which is a world away from uh, contemporary politics at least or at least the bit i'm reading at the moment which is all about his his parents back in dublin and so forth and his uh, dad dissecting dolphins dissecting dolphins yes he was not solemnist and he was uh, particularly interested in medicine and science and for some reason at one stage he dissected a dolphin so uh, so that's that has been shifting me away from uh, 2020's uh, daily grind of uh, reality. Pretty good. You can rely on Oscar. Helen, how about you? Um, yeah, well, I've been reading Charles Moore's biography of Margaret Thatcher because I know how Ooh. to have fun. Um, no, but I'll tell you what, the, the 1974 to 1979 Parliament will really cheer you up because that was that was off the hook. Um, I, 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 you might know this already from the James Graham play This House, but there was at one point in the middle of it, there was a uh, an MP who was pretty sure he was going to get done for tax fraud, so he faked his own death and went to Australia. Sweet. John Stonehouse. Yeah, Stonehouse, exactly. Um, so, you know, we always kind of go, oh, you couldn't write 2020s politics. And you think, ah, come on, until Michael Gove leaves his clothes on a beach and then is rediscovered living it up in Perth. You know, we've, we've still got a way to go. So that plus um, Fosse Verdun on BBC iPlayer, which is about the choreographer oh, yeah. Bob Fosse and, and Gwen Verdun, the, the dancer, which I'm really enjoying. If you like um, cabaret and musical theatre, then uh, give it a go. 
Well, I'm going to recommend a bit of telly as well. The Wu-Tang Clan documentary of Mikes and Men mm-hmm. on Sky, which is incredible. And, you know, you don't need to know anything about or even like hip hop. In fact, even if you detest hip hop, it is a fantastic thing to watch because it is a story. It is the story of the African-American experience over the past 40 years. It is it's sociology. It's about Wu-Tang Clan growing up as as friends on Staten Island what they experience, um, how the politics of the environment shapes them. Um, you've got astonishing scenes of them as little kids, you know, like, you know, the, the RZA and Old Dirty Bastard when they were little kids going to school and being harangued by, by white mobs, um, shouting the N-word at them as, as, as children. And, you know, I, I, I can't call myself a mega hardcore hip hop fan, but like I know my Wu Tang, and I was amazed at the revelations in this. It's it, you know the depth of it, and the, the you know the the fact that every single member of Wu Tang Clan is a is an astonishing story, and there's nine of them, so you certainly don't get shortchanged. It's on Sky Documentaries at the moment, episodes one to four, and let's face it, there is no better title for anything involved in hip hop than of Mike's and Men. Andrew, I need to start running my pitches for things by you because you know how to sell shit to white people. (laughs) (laughs) Selling shit to white people is my business and business is tepid. Helen. Oh, no, I was going to say, um, there's a Dave Chappelle sketch called um, Wu-Tang Financial. I don't know if you've ever seen it with the premise of which is <laughs> that Wu-Tang hand out sound financial advice to people, um, which I was sorry, I'm sure it must be on YouTube. It's, it's well worth watching. Well, the truth there, of course, is Wu-Tang Plan ain't nothing to fuck with. Exactly. So that. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our, uh, our special guest, Philip Sargent. Thank you for coming in, Philip, or dialing in. Thanks. No, very enjoyable. Thanks. I hear Shah and Helen Lewis. Thanks for joining us as, as ever. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget, listeners, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. There is the live stream on Zoom next Thursday the 9th, so uh, that's for Patreon backers too. Uh, if you back us, you'll get a shout-out on the show as well. And here are some shout-outs right now. Hello, and many thanks from me to Andrew Reed, Heather Walton, Angela and Terry Losker. And it's thanks for me to. Oh, hold on. This is. It's thanks for me when an egg is no longer being whisked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> can we just like stop mixing the yogurt yeah, or whatever it is? Yeah, can you stop that for a second? Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and it's thanks and best wishes from me to Robert King, Chris Butt, Glyn Richards, and A. Hegarty. We're not sure which Hegarty. A. Hegarty. <laughs> Maybe it's Anthony and the Johnsons. Who knows? And finally, hello from me to Andrew Bumbelis, Kelly Webb-Davis, Judith Skorupski and Sally Bean. We'll see you next time. Bye.